Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for February 17th, 2019. Today's podcast features two short sermons given by Ladane Pulaski and Dan McClintock, Family Life and Missions Minister at Park Road Baptist Church. Ladane speaks about finding a new way home, and Dan's topic is what it means to be blessed. During the weeks of the Epiphany season, our pastors, Russ and Amy Jacks Dean, have been offering what I found to be a marvelous series in which Russ has been sharing a story of a personal epiphany while Amy has been connecting his stories to the larger story of the gospel. Well, I am not Russ Dean. Though if you were reading this piece, it might take you a long time to figure that out. Like Russ, I could talk about growing up doubly Southern. That is, Southern Baptist in South Carolina. I could speak about being shaped in indelible ways by those two intertwining cultures. I could share accounts of having that world rocked and expanded at Furman University, even down to really specific actual details like taking philosophy with Doug McDonald and religion with John Shelley. So it might take you a while to figure out I wasn't Russ if you were reading. The Southern Baptist seminaries had become unwelcoming and unsafe for women in the few years between Russ's graduation and mine, so our paths did diverge at that point. While Russ and Amy went to Baptist theological schools, I went off to Duke Divinity and learned how to speak fluent Methodist. Still, I think you can see why Russ's stories have resonated so deeply with me. We have been shaped by many of the same people, places, and institutions. Here's one of my shaping stories. When I was a young child, handmade signs started appearing all over our neighborhood inviting people to a meeting. I could read, but I couldn't make sense of the letters on the sign, and I was intensely confused by my mother's fierce anger when she saw them. Finally, I had to ask, Mommy, what is KKK? I don't remember how she explained it to me, but I vividly recall seeing the event itself. It was held early one evening on an empty corner lot alongside the state road, which was the route into our neighborhood. Riding home in the family station wagon as the sun was setting, I saw hooded figures in bright white robes listening as someone with a ragged voice shouted over a loudspeaker. I had a glimpse of flames rising high as we sped past. In all likelihood, that frame was probably just in a barrel, 
but in my mind it was a conflagration. We could still hear the ugly voices over the loudspeaker when we pulled into our driveway. My vision of that meeting could only have lasted the few seconds that it took to drive by, but the scene has been seared in my memory ever since. I recently asked my parents if they could confirm that this had actually happened. I hadn't imagined it, had I? They indeed remembered the rally, and my stepdad was prompted, as he usually is, to tell a story. A black friend of one of my older brothers had shown up at our house. He had been on our side of town, and the only route he knew to get home was along the same state road we had just traveled. He wanted to be with his family, but he was rightfully frightened to go home the way that he knew. My dad was a city police officer who knew every back road in Greenville County that had ever been paved or not. So he took the young man in his truck, and together they found a new way home. For years, whenever I've heard the phrase white supremacy, I've returned in my mind to that scene of flames and hoods and robes and angry voices. Yet in the past few years, I have begun to see white supremacy located not in an abandoned lot a few blocks from my childhood home, but in a place far closer and far more frightening in my own heart and my own mind. For most of my life, I imagined that fighting racism was something I could do by focusing on outside of myself. It's been a long, slow, difficult epiphany to recognize that my struggle is at least as much an internal one. I do not consciously think of myself as superior. I don't think of people who look like me as superior. But my world is very white. The vast majority of my friends are white, as are most of my coworkers and my closest ministerial colleagues. Most of us at this church are white in case you hadn't noticed. Pretty much everybody in my neighborhood, and sorry Dan, every single member of my family. Even my Facebook page was a mostly white enclave until one of my friends posted the challenge, do all of your Facebook friends look like you? And I took steps to widen my circle of social media connections. That reality is not a coincidence. It didn't just happen. It's the result of my conscious and unconscious decisions in the midst of a society in which separation is the path of least resistance. 
and it is not without consequences. It affects the stories that I hear and the stories I don't hear, the things that I know and the things that I do not know. It affects what I think of as normal and natural and best. I have unknowingly, but yet regularly, lived out of that framework in the groups that I've joined or not joined, in how I've conducted myself within them, in how I've planned agendas and run meetings and taken minutes, in the silences that I've chosen to ignore or the ones that I didn't even notice, in the priorities that I've set for my work and my personal life, in the relationships that have received the most of my energy, in the way that I have written job descriptions and conducted job interviews. I could go on and on. I know it's not just me. At a conference that was held by the nonprofit that I served quite a few years ago, a black woman, a stranger to our group, stood up and spoke. She went on for some time, and the essence of her question was, how can you talk about social justice with so few people of color in the room? In all honesty, I just wanted her to shut up. I had no way at that time in my life of hearing her, no basis for understanding the depth of her anger and her frustration. And I wasn't alone. No one in our leadership knew how to respond, so we ignored her. As soon as she stopped talking, we went on as if nothing had happened. I don't remember that we ever even talked about her again, except to remark on how deeply she had misunderstood us. If we had responded at all, it would have been to say, so what do you think we should do about it? I've been learning that that's the wrong question, or at least that that would have been asking the wrong person. It wasn't her job to instruct us on how to be healed of our diseases and cured of the unclean spirits living within us. Though in retrospect, I greatly admire her courage in trying to bring them to our awareness. Over the past several years, courageous people within our organization, most of them white, have raised their voices to name specific ways in which people of color have experienced harm within our organization. An organization committed to peace and justice, an organization with explicit commitments to welcome and inclusion. We did not see what we were doing. We didn't mean to do harm. Our intentions were beyond good. And yet, these things did happen over and over. As we became aware of them, we realized that we had a lot of work to do. I don't have time this morning to go into detail about what that work has looked like, but I can tell you that it has been hard, messy, painful, exhausting, and exhilaratingly transformative. In a far more recent conference, an incident took place that was mostly invisible to those of us who were white, including me, 
and deeply painful to people of color. I didn't even recognize that something had happened until people started streaming past me with tears running down their faces. We still didn't know what to do, but this time we did not dismiss and ignore it. Several people met throughout the afternoon to come up with a response, and then we invited the people who were involved to gather together after evening worship. The least listening session that took place that night went on until 1.30 a.m. It was not perfect, and it was not easy, but it was transformative. And afterwards, many of people of color, some of whom had been part of our group for years, said that they felt heard and understood among us for the very first time. Jesus, it seems to me, spends a lot of his time telling people, you're not who you think you are, but there is a way forward. If you resonate with anything I have said this morning, you might be thinking, so what do I do? Guilt and shame serve no one. They cripple rather than motivate our efforts for change. So what might it look like to move forward? Based on my own experience, I would say that the least that we can do is recognize the depth of the work that we have to do and the flames of fear we will have to pass through in order to do it. No matter what path we choose, the road to beloved community runs through difficult and dangerous places some of them far closer than we have ever imagined. But perhaps, perhaps a different route will take us home for the very first time. May it be so. Thank you, Ladane, for sharing that powerful personal epiphany. May we have ears to hear. So from our scripture passage today, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who hunger now, blessed are you who weep now, and blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you, and defame you. Folks, are these hard sayings, or what? It doesn't really make you want to go out and put yourself in a position to be blessed, does it? When people are clamoring for some sign of the Christian faith to be displayed in the village square or in front of the courthouse, they might suggest the Ten Commandments or a manger scene, but you don't hear them arguing for the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor and the hungry, and they're certainly not advocating for the woes. Woe to you who are rich, whose stomachs are satisfied. 
Woe to you who laugh now, and woe to you when people speak well of you. Frankly, I'm not sure what to do with these words of Jesus, but don't look for them to be etched in stone in front of the Bank of America anytime soon. Jesus bestowing his blessing that day on those disciples who were following him does lead me to wonder what it means to be blessed by God. What does it feel like for us to know that we have God's blessing? Years ago, I was fortunate to hear a fascinating lecture by Brennan Manning. He was a prolific author, laicized priest, and public speaker before his death in 2013, and is best known for writing the Ragamuffin Gospel. In this lecture, Manning talked about the parable, parable of the prodigal son, and he theorized that this younger son knew without question that he had his father's blessing. And so, he felt free to take his inheritance, eventually to squander it, and then return to his father's house, knowing in his heart that he would be welcomed back with open arms. Meanwhile, the elder son, who felt he had to earn his father's blessing through obedience and conformity, never realized that he too had his father's blessing all along. Manning then encouraged us in his audience to think about and write about a person in our lives whom we knew accepted us unconditionally. Someone who would stand by us no matter what, under any circumstances. Someone we could count on to have our backs. I immediately thought of my wife. We'd known each other since we were about 12 years old. We dated on and off through high school and college. And even when we were off, we were always good friends. I'd say best friends, but it wasn't cool to have a girl as a best friend. We knew just about everything there was to know about each other, and even early in our marriage, had already seen each other through some difficult times. I was absolutely sure of her acceptance and of her love for me. Manning then asked us a simple question. Are you as sure of God's unconditional love for you? He explained that most of us are like the older brother. We think that God's love for us somehow depends on us making ourselves worthy. We think it's a matter of being good enough or getting rid of this or that defect of character. Manning said, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by God and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God, he said. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. 
What does it mean to have God's blessing? I think it's to know that you are beloved by God, not because of anything you've done or not done, but just because you're you. It's an act of God's grace. When Manning asked that question, are you sure of God's unconditional love for you, I had to stop and think about it. We're all part of a culture where the highest value is placed on achievement, on accomplishing things. We define ourselves by what we do, not by who we are. We get into the right college based on our grades and our extracurricular activities and our civic or church involvement and our well-written essays and our impressive interviews. We get that first job because of our achievements in college or graduate school. And we get promotions based on what? Performance. And on and on. We are used to working hard, getting things done, and being, being recognized for our achievements. So understandably, it's hard to imagine that God loves me just for being me. But that's what grace is all about, isn't it? I didn't grow up going to church very often, and I was not familiar with the whole concept of Jesus' death appeasing a God who was angry with us. When I went to Furman and even to seminary, you could say that I was pretty much a blank slate. I didn't really know much about God or about the Bible. But I thought of Jesus' death as an expression of how far he was willing to go and how far God was willing to go to demonstrate God's love for us. Not in a sacrifice for sin kind of way, but in an I love you this much kind of way. I had no trouble believing that God is love. My problem was believing that that love was freely offered to me. No earning it or deserving it was necessary. I can't stress enough how important it is for each one of you to know that you are blessed, that you are God's beloved. Let that be your one true identity. That's why we feel like it's important every Sunday to stand here and say you are loved, you are forgiven, so be at peace. If you're going to do justice to the, this passage this morning, we need to address the hard sayings too. Not that accepting the fact that God loves you not for anything you've done, but for who you are, is an easy thing. For some, just that will take a lifetime. But there's more hard stuff in this passage, too. Jesus looked at his followers and said, You are poor, you are hungry, you who weep now and you who are persecuted, you are the ones who are blessed. And the four woes 
are the exact antithesis. Woe to you who are rich, who are satisfied, who are laughing now, and woe to you of whom people speak well. In broad strokes, we can say that the blessed are those who recognize and acknowledge their dependence on God. I'm always struck when we go to Cuba, as we will be going again in a few weeks, by how very little the people in Carlos Rojas possess materially. By our standards, they have almost nothing when it comes to clothes, furnishings, medicines, and even food. And to me, what's worse is that there seems to be almost no hope of getting ahead or of changing their situation in life. They're not likely to ever have very much more than they have today. And yet, anyone from our church who has been there will tell you that as hard as everyday life is for them, there is a deep sense of love and joy and hope that is clearly visible in that community and among our friends there. So, does that let us off the hook? The fact that poor people can somehow find happiness? I don't think so. Woe to you who are rich. That would be all of us. If your income is just $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% worldwide in terms of income. So what are we to do with our income? If I had to guess, I'd say Jesus would probably have us share more of it than we do with those in need and not make money the source of our security. While we're at it, we probably need to think about the systems, educational, judicial, economic, social, the systems that perpetuate poverty and hunger and oppression. How can we influence those systems? And how are we benefiting from them? These are hard questions. But then these sayings of Jesus are hard sayings. We can't just ignore them. Maybe we need to pay attention to this topsy-turvy, upside-down, reprioritizing that Jesus is talking about. Maybe the qualities of life we're seeking, love and joy, happiness and peace, are not to be found in more accomplishments and more recognition in accumulating more financial security for ourselves. Maybe, just maybe, those qualities are found in giving ourselves away, in doing for others, in truly recognizing that we are all God's children, no matter the color of our skin, our particular religious beliefs, our sexual orientation, what part of town we come from, or how much money we have in the bank. We are all God's children. We are all blessed, beloved of God, accepted 
not on our merits, but by God's grace. Let us, in turn, be a blessing to others. May it be so. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.